Peter Defty here with a real special uh, podcast interview. Uh, today we're going to be speaking with Rocco Bellic. Is that correct? Got it right? I was introduced to Rocco about five years ago through Michele Graglia uh, and Falco Tarzani, where we did a, an interview right here on this beach in Malibu. And I was exposed to Rocco's work. And today's podcast and some of the content we're also going to record is on this. We're going to work, talk about this whole topic of happiness. Happiness, contentment, gratitude, you know, there's a lot of this stuff floating around the internet on how to be it, but, but Rocco's a guy who's, through his documentary filmmaking, has had a lot of different exposures. Uh, so we're gonna, you know, this is why we're gonna do this. And it's, it's, it's a, this podcast is on being happy. And this is his film actually called Happy that he did a documentary. Um, and if you ever have a chance to get it or see it on, online, it's a great movie, great piece of OFM content. But we're going to be kind of digging in a little deeper today. So use that as your reference point, his movie Happy. And then we've got Bo here, who is a happy guy too. So, I mean, it's perfect. What, what, what else can you do? We're sitting on here in, the, in, in California right after the winter solstice, and it couldn't, be, couldn't get any better. So, Roko, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Yeah. Good to great, be here. Great to see you. Yeah. You know, it's like, right like I said, I mean, the winter solstice has just passed. Yeah. We're now on the upside. I'll be at the second shortest day of the year. Right. Right. And right. we're in California. Uh, yeah. There's a pelican. That's right. No, or a seagull. You're reminding me of, uh, of one thing I learned when I studied happiness, which is just simply about appreciating where you are and yeah. what you have, what is going right. Right. You know. So to qualify you as, as you're not like a title expert in this, but... I, you know, because I'm an empiricist, I see people for what they can do, it, you know, tell us a, a little bit about, because you've got this very background from your youth, you know, because your dad was a, 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 an expat, right? He yeah. came to this country right. pretty much penniless. Yeah, he and came then, as a medical student. Right, yeah. came as yeah. a medical student yeah. uh, from Croatia. And then, but you've been exposed to all kinds of people. I mean, you know, when I started looking into this, I thought this is going to be the guy I like, man I hit the jackpot because you've been to Tuva right now right. does anybody know where Tuva is Der Derek do you know where Tuva is <laughs> do you know where oh, Tuva is look at that. Tuva no Tuva <laughs> not, not, not Arizona, it's, not Arizona. <laughs> it's in the it's in the center of Asia it's, it's in of... the center of Asia tucked between Mongolia and Russia That's as right. part of the Russian Empire I guess and 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 actually, Americans can't go there, or very few foreigners can go there. Americans weren't allowed there for a long time. Now, once again, with the war in Ukraine, we're not allowed in Russia. It's hard. It's difficult to go. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so Tuva was basically an isolated place forever. And what you're getting at, Peter, is I, I grew up very curious about the world. Yeah. So with foreign parents, my dad was from Yugoslavia. My mom's from Czechoslovakia. Um, they came a couple years before my brother and I were born in America. But they taught me to recognize that the world is not just my neighborhood or just my school, but the world is bigger, and there are cultures out there that so, we can learn from. So you don't have you don't have that embedded xenophobia because you came from a uh, right. I mean, hopefully, a cosmopolitan. I would say, yeah, the benefits of, of having foreign parents is just recognizing that the story that I hear in school or the culture that I'm exposed to in school is not the only one. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of funny you say that because, like, um, 
this is really a conversation between an artist, a filmmaker, and a guy who's a biologist, but with some artsy left-handy uh, uh, tendencies. And so, as a biologist, it's like, I have this thought that xenophobia is almost a, 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 a catch-all phrase for not just fear of foreigners, but fear of people who are different. Right. Right? right. And it's sort of biological hardwired into us until we have that exposure to where we have to moderate and learn that as people we all have more in common than we don't yeah and you know right now that that biological hardwiring is is sort of an undercurrent that's being leveraged by the modern world right mm -hmm. wouldn't mm -hmm. care to comment on that yeah i mean i i interviewed uh, a guy um named Steven Pinker for my last film called Trust Me, which is about disinformation And we're going to talk online. about that, yeah. Because sure, that's sure. the other end of the spectrum. Sure. Well, and, and one thing um, Steven said is the, 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 he got to the basic level of what unifies human beings. He said, look, you might want to wear your hair like this or have this different you know, thing in your culture where you wear dresses or you don't or whatever. Sure, there's superficial differences. Yes. But nobody would rather be dead than alive, right? Everybody that's wants right. to be alive. Nobody wants to be sick instead of healthy. Everybody wants to be healthy. Nobody wants their kids or their family or their friends to suffer. Nobody likes injustice. Our feelings of what justice are yes. differ a little bit. But right. morally, these codes are embedded. And we've seen even animals, even dogs, other animals, babies, infants at, eight, at six months of age can understand when something is just or unjust. They've done experiments with teddy bears where one teddy bear will, will do something mean to another teddy bear and the kid afterwards wants to play with the teddy bear that got, um, that got abused. That, oh, was, wow, that was an innocent victim. Right, yeah. so morals are embedded to some extent in our biology and that crosses cultures. That's, that's just as a species, as an animal, um, we have this foundation. And so absolutely what you said, you know, that we have more in common than, than, than we have that separates us. That's so extremely true, especially when you look at the news and you think of the stories that are out there about immigrants or people who have different uh, political ideas. You know, we feel these divisive powers and we feel that somebody's, you know, that our differences are irreconcilable. And it's, it's, that's a huge illusion because everybody wants their kids to be fed and safe. Everybody wants right. their kids to be at, educated. At its foundation, it's, it goes back to like what I call my, my two, two S's, sex and survival. Survival mm. of the self, yep. survival of the species. Right. And, um, and we do that by cooperating. We don't do that right. by fighting and by isolating and discriminating. You know, the xenophobia, uh, I, I think there's a reason why it evolved in a tribal time when yes. tribes were vying for resources in a, that, were, um, that were more precarious, when, when a drought could kill off a population. You know, through science and progress and technology and advancement of society, we've been able to mitigate a lot of those risks. So, but our tribalism is still in us. Well, and this is the interesting thing about being human, and, and we're going to get to happiness on this, folks. But, but because we're we're human and it's it is a unique situation compared to other animals, that ability to both cooperate and kill can go both ways, right? right. As humans we can cooperate on a social level that other animals in their social structures cannot right. to our benefit. And it's what you know, built this very convenient and luxurious life we live in, right? It's not daily hard scrabble survival, right? right? Not for uh, most of the us, The fact yeah. that we can 
sit here on the beach, have a conversation, record it, and broadcast it to the world. Right. But at the same time, we're seeing what's going on in Ukraine or in Iran or certain places in Africa right now where that same humanness leverages it the other. And, you know, you've got this balancing act between happiness and fear. And I think what you said about curiosity, I think I'm hardwired to be curious because my mother is Japanese. Mm -hmm. My father was a Marine pilot who was stationed overseas and then he flew for Pan American. So he was always going and meeting people when he got into some weird place. Right. In the so city. he was curious. He was an he explorer. He was curious. He liked people and people right. liked him. So, right. you know, he had so. friends in Tahiti and New Zealand mm -hmm. and, and Australia and, and England and all that because wherever he flew he got to meet people and you know that's the thing I think this this energy that's curiosity versus fear it's just it's it's a it's just that subtle twist of, of what you fall into right well there's also there's hardwiring that that is working against our compassion and openness and kindness and that hardwiring has to do with fear and anger yep. so those two emotions when they're triggered and again I kind of learned this you know you had said you talked about being an expert or not, and, and I'm not an expert in anything, but whenever I work on a movie, I study that subject a lot. So I studied happiness. I thought about it for years and years. And in this case, I studied disinformation and online, inf the spread of information. And one of the, the, the top shared, the most shared Facebook post in 2018 was a news article. And the title of the new news article was, uh, human trafficker, child predator may be in our area. Uh -huh. Okay, human trafficker, child predator may be in our area. So that pops up in your Facebook feed. And if you boom. have kids, if you have neighbors who have kids, if you don't have kids but you're thinking about, you cannot not, res you can't not respond to that. Yes, it may on, be in our a, area. On a visceral level. Well, well you look gonna, around, yeah. whatever you gotta do, you're gonna, you're gonna repost it. If you don't have time to read it, you'll just retweet it or repost it so that people in your neighborhood can you know, keep their kids safe. Right. That, that is hardwired. If the next article says, you know, 100,000 people cooperate on, on saving a child's life or something, your brain will pay attention to the first scary one first. That's it right. takes priority. And, and so that understanding that imbalance in how we're wired is an un, it helps us understand why the news is full of bad news because it's bad, it's in the news because it's unusual and it catches our attention and it's something we've been wired to pay attention to so we can fix it. Right, and it, this goes back to what I've been thinking about how modern technology as it's evolved, mm. and especially now it's evolved very quickly in the last 20 years, Right, is technology is actually pinging very primitive hardwiring right. in, in ways that leverage that hard riding, wiring, right? Yeah. Because, because in, you know, in the natural world, say the hunter-gatherer era that was most of human existence, right? It's pretty clear in the archeology. span Yes, we had, we had dangers, but they were sporadic right. stressors. Right. We did, Which we, is why we needed to prioritize them, right? If there's right. a lion in the grass or there's a polar bear on the ice, if you, if you pay attention to something else at that moment, you may be taken out of the gene pool in right. a few seconds. Or, or another tribe's coming after you. And right. If you're the male, you go fight them. If you're the female, you grab the kids and get in the bushes. Right. If you don't acknowledge that emotional right. response, then you're gone. But for the vast majority of the time, you know, like Pareto's law, 80-20. Hmm. Most of the time, right. there wasn't this, this pressure Whereas you know, like, trust me is a perfect example of how hmm. people are getting this, this 
micro pinging of their of that fight or flight hard right. wiring. And right. as a biologist, and this is why I wanted to do this interview, it's pinging your physiology and metabolism mm -hmm. in ways where you tap in your fight or flight energy source, you burn glucose, you don't burn fat, you don't have the, because it's, it's crisis management. Drop everything right. Right. to get energy so you can either fight or get away. Right. Right? But you're not going to re be rebuilding your cells. You're not going to be rebuilding your mitochondria. All the things that fat metabolism does because mm -hmm. it's not just an energy source. It's a vehicle for proteins mm -hmm. um, and other elements to synthesize cells, mitochondria, hormones, enzymes. So, but we have this chronic thing. You've had this experience that brought up um, Tuva because Tuva was a part of a film that you serendipitously made uh, called Genghis Blues. Genghis Blues, yeah. And, and, and let's start with let's start with that, and then we're going to circle back around to trust me, and then we're going to try to come back to like, okay, what are, what's the solution? Because your experience between it's not just happy the movie. It's like Genghis Blues. Um, what was the one with the doctors you and your brother made? Uh, it was called Beyond the Call. Beyond the Call. Yeah. I mean. Very inspiring story. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, these guys were going out and putting themselves in harm and right. doing it with gusto. Right. It reminds me of that Sean Connery, Michael Caine uh, movie, The Man Who Would Be Killed. Oh, yeah. That's a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. Well, you're getting at something which I haven't really thought about in a while, which is that I am interested in people digging deep within themselves taking on a challenge that maybe other people don't recognize as being worthy or rewarding and going for it. That's right. Right? So, so I, I'm working on a film now that, that we talked about earlier about, uh, about a guy I knew who grew up in Yugoslavia in World War II. Yep. Uh, had a challenging upbringing. He lost his mom when he was a baby and was raised by his teenage father just after the war. It was kind of a miserable upbringing and he won. Yeah, I mean, they, teenage, teenage males have no clue what they're doing. Well, <laughs> I mean, plus the challenges of, you know, post-war Yugoslavia, yeah. it's already a poor country and now it's devastated by war. Um, this kid found peace in the ocean. He loved swimming, being on a yeah, rowboat. I, I mean, look at this. That's the only place he could find peace. And so he wanted to be a boat captain. But after some talks with his dad, he decided to study medicine instead. He came to America, became a doctor. And when he was retiring, he, he this dream of being on the ocean came back to him and, and this time it wasn't going away and he decided he was going to row a boat across the ocean. And, and during that four and a half months that he was at sea, he was ecstatic. And his wife and two daughters, preteen, one teenager, one preteen daughter, they were, they were scared, he was going to die, they were really against his trip. But for him it was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream and for four and a half months at sea, it was that thing and he was... Well, it goes back to what I say, you know, about biology and, and I think we've kind of got to reconsider this. I don't want to put a judgment, but I, I always say, you know, like women want a nest, mm. it's their nurturing, and men want to conquer the world, mm. right? Mm. We like a place to come home to, sure. but we still want to go out and conquer the world. Right. And some, like, you're doing that in your film work. I'm doing it with my, this thing that I, thing that, this thing I came across, like, oh, wow, we got this all wrong about pushing all these carbs on people, right? Mm, and right. like what it's doing, and that, that's like became my thing. Right. And well, and that's it. And I'm interested in people who are kind of pushing. Yeah. And and, and, and not know, the, for the monetary gains. Right. For something intrinsic. Yes. And that's one thing I, I learned that word in terms of intrinsic happiness, studying happiness. Yeah. The, the, just for the, the, the act of doing it. Yeah. Um, 
and and by the way, there are plenty of women who do Super Bowls. Oh no, it's not, it's not. It's not enough. Plenty, but but, but yeah, from plenty a of men who want to stay at home. But, but, but it's not that they're staying at home. It's just there's a biological imperative to nurture. Right. And right. That, right. It's just. It's just it, so, it tends to be more towards uh, yes. women, and and the adventure or the the, the risk taking tends to be more yeah, towards it's not, men. it's not it's There's not it's not exclusive, huge overlap. but right. but the right. the tendency, uh, right. and even God, I can't remember her name right now, but she's a feminist uh, academic, and she even says this sort of thing. Mm, sure. You know. Interestingly, though, most of the ocean rowers that I've spoken with in the last few years are all women. Yeah. They're all doing super amazing balls. Well, and and that makes stuff. total sense to me because. Yeah. I've always said that that women are are fat burning machines. They're mm. they're primed to it because I, I I got on this thing studying dairy nutrition with some friends, just conversations about fat metabolism. Because mm. dairy cows, I look at them like a superhuman athlete, like an elite okay. athlete today. Because but the metric is milk production. Right. But when you look at the physiology, and I don't want to lose you or anybody else, mm. but it got me to thinking. It's like females are hardwired to be super fat burners because mm. because one of the things with dairy cows is when they calve. Because of the breeding and the genetics and the, they're pushing the cattle mm. right now, I'm not, and I don't want to get into the politics of that, but just when they calve, they go into this state of hyperketosis. Mm. Because what happens is all the resources, they've produced this new life, so all the resources go to milk production mm. to sustain and make that new life thrive. Uh-huh. And I started thinking about this because years ago when I rode a motorcycle from California to Panama, mm. I saw this, it brought me back to this, like you'd see these young women who were literally like in their early 20s, they'd have two kids and then they'd have one on their chest, mm. they were lactating, and it was literally sucking the life out of the same thing that why you have to watch a, a milk cow, you have to balance that milk production with, mm. so they don't take everything out of the cow. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. really a fascinating thing, but but women, so late gestation, childbearing, lactation period, you store all this fat to produce milk, you know, to, to right, you know, you're not, you're, you're, you're impaired at hunting and gathering by late gestation, mm-hmm. child, and you can't depend on the male to be around, mm-hmm. uh, okay. <laughs> right? Well, hopefully you, you need can, to be but... a self-sustaining unit, and mm. so, they go, women have this capability. Mm. Now we've messed that up in the modern world, but they have this capability to burn fat like crazy. So it doesn't surprise me that these, these long distance rowers are women right. because once right. they get into that zone. Yep. Well, that, that, Peter, that's my question for you, which is, um, you know, I'm interested in stories of people who push it. Yeah. And, and it feels like Everything we talked about in terms of the triggers, our emotional triggers for fear and anger and yeah. things that, that, that sort keeps of derail us. us. Pushing it. Exactly. Is there somewhere we can, where that positive spiral of health, you know, everybody who goes to, the, who, everybody who finds something they love to do that's physical and challenging, like running mental, or going to the gym. Emo- well, even yeah. mental and emotional. I was going to say, right. th- th- whether they know it or not, that's a byproduct. You know, people feel better is the point. When right. people find something they love to do physically, they feel better and they think better and they think more clearly and they're a little more mellow and they're less reactionary. There's a, there's a positive spiral that, that really encapsulates some sort of whole flourishing or thriving. It's not just that your legs get stronger or your lungs get, you know, more capacity. Physical exercise seems to bleed in in a positive to all these other emotional states and even cognitive states. It does, it does to a certain extent, because when you feel stronger, you're going to feel less threatened, right? Right. Because, right, right. right. 
But like we see this, I see this a lot in athletes that are burning a lot of carbs, especially like people who are doing more plant-based and it's not a knocker. It's just, it's just, they're pushing themselves at a limit where they really got to get their nutrition on point. Right. Right. Cause they're turnover. And if they're pushing a lot of uh, carbs, it actually goes the other way. They get stronger and fitter because they have to. The body's responding because the bo our bodies are amazing. Right. They'll do things, but their, their energy levels, their emotional stability. I think even Eric, our DP today, can even attest to that. Some people he's known. It's, it's, it's like you get that blood sugar roller coaster going where you, where you get that healthy thing where your, your fat is your aerobic energy source, mm. not glucose because you have too much you have that blood sugar stability and it's like, mm. yeah, I'm here, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm present in the moment uh -huh. because you have that stability. It's, it's really, that's why, I, that's, that's kind of like where I am. It's like, it's not a diet, it's not right. a keto diet or a paleo diet or anything like that. It's, it's a state of, a physiological state of being. Right. And Peter, you're testing these things on yourself, right? You're kind I, of, I'm guinea pig number one. Right, right. But I've got a guinea pig behind the camera. Derek is the, uh, We've yeah. got Jeff Browning, who's mm. 51 years old. Mm. Um, and literally he's in the top five of the world hundred mile or, or and over trail, mountain trail runners. And he's 51 years old. He's racing guys 10, 15, 20 years younger than him uh -huh. at that uh -huh. elite level. And he's doing more big events than they are in terms yeah. of, because he recovers faster because he's in this, this deep state of, of fat oxidation. And those guys are good fat burners too, but they're not doing everything they can mainly because they're young males and young males, you know, Young males are young males. I was one. Right. <laughs> you can't tell them anything. <laughs> I was going to say that when I went up to Big Bear for one of the races, uh, I was a spectator. Um, but it was a, there was a 50 mile and a 100 mile on the same day. And the guy who won, I, I don't remember if it was a 50 or the 100 miler. I think it was a 50 miler. He was 62 years old, the guy who won. Yeah. And, and, and people talked about that, that, you know, we think of our peak physical ability to be somewhere in your 20s. But that's proving not to be the case with other, other endeavors like like these long-term pursuits. Like I mean, we do age. There is a clock, but what we it's, it's like one of the things Roko, and this has to do with happiness and longevity. It's like the modern, what I call the modern human construct, mm -hmm. right? We've so ensconced ourselves in this world, this modern world, um, not this world we're here, that we've dumbed down health so what mm. we what's the medical industry considers healthy is is far fr is from the evolutionary biological model is sick mm. Mm. okay mm -hmm. um and so we want to when you get to this robust state that you can be out all day hiking and you know like like i say a 50 miler or 50k is nothing more than what we evolved to do which is being on our feet hunting and gathering all day there's a certain physiological thing that creates a stability that allows those tripwires of the fight or flight response not to get so easily triggered. Whereas, you know, with trust me, it's like we're constantly ting, 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 ting. Of right. fight, and it's, it's basically fight or flight response. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not people talk about the reward mechanism. Um, but there's there's a, I think there's a big fight or flight re response because a lot of people like they have to have that text or that message because they're afraid they're going to miss it. They're going to they're worried right. about what people are thinking about them. Sure. Um, sure. I mean, you can talk more about that, but that's that's the other. End yeah, no, that, that's why I want it. That's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because. 
we know, or at least I know, and I've been exposed to the story of all these negative impacts, right? Social media can affect people negatively. There was even some research that showed that looking at pictures of, of female models in a magazine, uh, fashion ma magazines, you know, men's magazines and women's magazines both have pictures of pretty women. And both men and women, on average, tend to feel worse after they've done it. The women feel worse about themselves when they're looking at pictures of women who they feel are more beautiful. And the men tend to compare their girlfriend or wife and feel that they're not having, you know, that, that their wife or girlfriend isn't as pretty. So it's this crazy paradox. Where, where but then it, there's McKelly who's got it all together. McKelly right, and Laura right, is like, right. we see pictures of McKelly. It's like. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, that, that's sort of what I'm getting yeah. at is that on the flip side, there's a, there's a flourishing mode where you are in tune with your body, where you're eating things and acting in a way that's healthy for you, where you can go all day. You know, McKelly showed up here when we first met, uh, when you and I first met, McKelly showed up, it was about one in the afternoon or maybe 12 uh, noon or one, and, and he had run 26 miles that morning and hadn't eaten anything yet. That's right. That's, he drank some water. Yeah. And that's against he every- He took a Vespa and drank, and drank some water. That's it, that's it. And, and, and then he had a big salad. Yeah. And, and, and I thought, wow, that's against everything that I was Taught, taught to believe. Growing up, you know, I'm 51, so we I grew up definitely in the carbs. It was like 80% carbs, a little right. bit of protein, a little bit. Because tiny in bit the of fat. era that your dad was a cardiologist, that was that's what they, that was the that understanding. Was the, that was quote unquote the science. Right, and even even today, even with a, a more nuanced understanding, everybody says you should eat a big breakfast. And here's McKelly, who just ran 26 miles, shows up at noon, said he wasn't super hungry. He ran a marathon and hadn't eaten breakfast. Yeah. And he is in the best shape, obviously. You know, and he's happy too. And, and, and yeah. McKelly's a good, it's a good point that we bring him up because, I mean, you know, you've seen some of his modeling pics, right? Yeah. The guy's a supermodel, right? Yeah. Right? He yeah. makes us look like slackers. But right. yet, you know, his story is an amazing one because he, he threw out, he, he basically left that glorious and glamorous lifestyle because it was vacuous to him, and, right. and, and he's running 26 miles in the morning, right. <laughs> fasted, yeah. in the mountains, and, and just, you know, living the dream. It's, it's given him that sense of purpose yeah, and happiness. That's part of the happiness research that, in our film, the way I translated that awareness about physical activity and, and its impact on our emotional and, and psychological well-being, um, we translated that with just with, or we summarized it with the word play. Right. So whether you're playing tennis, playing with your kids, running, whatever it is, surfing. For me, my play is surfing. That's what I love to do. If you play in a way that's physically and aerobically taxing or challenging, you're more likely to be happy in the long term. But a lot of people are resistant to that because the doctors have said diet and exercise, right? Those are the two right. things you need to sort of optimize yourself. And most people go, Ugh, I don't feel like exercising, you know, and I don't really feel like dieting. It doesn't sound good. But, but I wanted to talk to you about the, the, that these things w work where they're a, they create a positive spiral. Like you said, McKelly shows up after 26 mile run with no breakfast, happy, smiling, yeah. beaming, totally full of energy, not exhausted, not downtrodden, not all these things that we think you would feel if you've been, if it was a But that's the thing, march. if he was doing that on carbs, he would have had a bowl of oatmeal, mm, he would have right. two or three gels during his run, and he would have been depleted afterwards. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but there is this, right, there is right. this through diet and just through sort of paying attention. Uh, you know, we talked about earlier the, the idea that a lot of people who eat meat um, are people who haven't changed their diet because meat was part of the standard Meat is diet. part of the diet, but it's right. not part of the whole diet exactly. or, or the lifestyle. Exactly. Right. And, and so people who eat meat tend to be 
slightly worse off than people who are vegetarian, not because they eat meat, but because they haven't tried anything new, because they're just doing the status quo with how they grew up. Maybe they're eating too much meat. Maybe yeah, and there's alcohol, much. maybe some smoking. Exactly, exactly. exactly. Sedentary lifestyle where, where the, 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 the tendency of, of people who are vegetarian or more plant-based they're very health conscious. Yeah, they're at least, exactly. They've at least thought about it enough to make this change against the odds and against the, going against but the they're also But they're also conscious of exercise, exactly. healthy yeah, lifestyle. Yeah. They tend not to be smokers or heavy drinkers. Right. And that's the part that's interesting because I, even myself, I am so aware of this stuff. I've been aware of this stuff for a long time, consciously. But subconsciously, I still do things sometimes that are self-destructive. I don't exercise enough, for example. Sometimes when I'm really in a in a rut or, or where I'm, I'm behind that deadline, I don't exercise for a few days and then I'm worse at the end of the week. Whereas if I had exercised, sometimes where, the other times when I remind myself, no, I have to put in at least 45 minutes of something aerobic. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna fix that. We're exactly, fix I'm that. better <laughs> off and, 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 and I'm, I'm more productive, but it's still challenging. So my, it that's, is. that's it what is. I want. Like I said, we've, we've ensconced ourselves in this man-made construct to where it's, it's so debauched from the environment that shaped us, mm. we don't know what a good decision is right, in a lot of right, ways. Right. I mean, and, and, and this is what's transpired with healthcare. Mm. I'm a curious guy, so I, I've been sort of like marginalized from the keto crowd because I'm not mm. doing this carbs are the devil right. mentality. It's like, no, carbs, carbs actually work. If you build up your metabolic capacity, get yourself fat adapted, you can have carbs to where you don't even, it doesn't even look like a diet. And like mm. some of us, get accused that we're not even doing a carb restricted diet because in high training loads you, you eat a lot you need a lot of carbs mm. but the point i wanted to make here is that we have this robustness and flexibility within it's like part of that joy i think on a physiological level is when you tap into your inner energy mm. that we have boundless energy we have boundless mental capacity compared to other animals, right? Mm -hmm. So like you say, it's that upward spiral, upward cascade effect rather right. than downward. And that's exciting to me because yeah. I can feel in myself, I should have done this last week because it worked so well. To experience that is something that's so, um, it's a great reminder. Right, and, and like how. you've made this movie happy, mm. but then like the movie you're working on right now, it doesn't have a good ending in terms mm. of the person's story, mm. but it's a joyous movie. It's a, it's a celebration of life because right. this person was doing, he left a dream for, for the reasons he did and, and nobody's, but, but he never lost it. Right. And he was able to live it out. Right. Right. Well, yeah. Maybe not the outcome he wanted, but, but it was, it was, it was the final outcome, but, but the actual execution is like living in the moment. Yeah. Savoring that moment because you were in contact Being with alive. him. Right, to, to, to clarify for people who don't know the story, the end of the story is that when this person was rowing across the ocean four and a half months out at sea, three days from landfall in Ireland, uh, a big storm came and he was lost at sea. And, and, he, and that's it, he disappeared. And that was my dad. And I was 30 years old at the time. I had traveled around the world with a backpack for a year. I had been to all kinds of places where people were worried about me. I was not worried about my dad at all on his trip. I was positive he was going to make it because it always worked out in my case. Right. So far at that point in my life, it's sort well, of Well, it's like I say, it's like I say, 2%, and this is, I, I tell people who are, because I spend a lot of time working with clients where part, a lot, it's, I, I get them dialed in on the supplements and the diet and the training, mm -hmm. but I got to spend half my time talking them away from the ledge because right. they're so type A. What uh -huh. about this? What about this? Uh -huh. And it's like, I tell people, 2%, like, can this bad outcome happen? Yes. 
it's real. I'm acknowledging that reality, but in the scheme of things, it's less than two percent of the of the possibilities. Right. Most right. of the time, you know, the the most people make it. Most, most people make people, it. Right. 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 I, I mean, I, you, you backpacked mm -hmm. around the world. I rode a motorcycle to Panama in 1985 during the height of the Contra War. There you go. Right. right? Both people thought you were crazy. I am crazy. Right. There you go. <laughs> well, and that, that kind of gets at, <clears throat> I think, one of the reasons you resonated with that story and the conversation we're having, which is what life are you choosing to live every day? Are you going to choose the life that's safe and comfortable? where you mitigate any risks and you don't push yourself because any time kind of pushing puts you at risk or are you going to go for it and feel fulfilled in that well and that's the thing this ensconced ourselves so long we've <clears throat> and we've been so prosperous mm. in a in a very what i call not a real situation it's not real we haven't had those pressures because with Unfortunately, this will go into economics now, but quantitative easing mm. made it very easy to grow the economy mm. and have all this prosperity. When you look at the powers that be now in, whether it's, and you know this in filmmaking, we talked about it. Mm. The people with the resources aren't taking risks. They w they'll rather right. pay a premium to get a finished product that has tested well right. than to take a r risk on that project and spend you know that seed that very little seed money it takes to to make right. a film it's not as good of a safe it's not they're not safe, they're right. not they're not even going near that right. even though right. they wouldn't be on the street right. you know it wouldn't it wouldn't affect their lifestyle they they just yeah. won't do it and 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 everything's been positioned to be risk risk we're so risk averse and we and that that we don't know what risk is as a society your your father's tale resonates with me because I'm I'm approximately the same age he was when he went and did that mm -hmm. and I spend my days alone in the mountains mm -hmm. and all kinds of stuff could get happen to me it could it could be the same situation I could sprain an ankle and a snowstorm comes in right and I'm screwed right 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 and at the same time the life you're living is fulfilling and rewarding you and spending a time in the mountains and seeing the snowstorm come and experiencing that makes you feel alive and that you wouldn't if you're and i do my best thinking i right, mean how many right, times right. have you been out there right. and and you get these thoughts <clears throat> these fleeting thoughts it's like wow and then you try to remember it when you get back to the real yeah, world yeah i know you have to have a system <laughs> i i have some systems of writing things down um yeah, yeah. so what let's <laughs> let, i want to kind of direct this a little bit um mm -hmm. let's start with that whole thing like backpacking around the world uh, sure. Genghis blues beyond the call these exposed you let's start with the Tuvinians and their lifestyle I mean sure. that whole thing and, and and the guy the blind dude yeah right? yeah I know it's an amazing tell us story that. That, it's just <clears throat> so um, Genghis blues if you that's another one to watch so when I was about 15 years old I was I watched a lot of PBS public television right. I watched a lot of documentaries my mom <clears throat> had encouraged me, especially once she realized that my friends in school didn't know anything about the rest of the world. They never heard of Czechoslovakia. I mean, when I'm in elementary school, she would come, you know, my friends would come over and they would have no idea where her accent's from, why she has an accent. This is outside of Chicago in a, a suburb called Evanston, a wonderful place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But very homogenous in, in, um, in terms of its Americanism. There, right. there were not, at the time, there were not many foreigners there. Right, um, and you were, you were actually like more Except for your mom's accent, you guys blended in pretty well. We did, although although when I got to kindergarten, when I first started school, I didn't speak English. I, my only language was Serbo-Croatian. Serbo-Croatian. Yugoslav. Yeah. Um, so it took me a couple years to assimilate, but then yes, I totally blended in. I was totally American. I feel completely American. Um, but but watching these documentaries growing up, 
Uh, one of them I saw one night was about uh, an eccentric American physicist named Richard Feynman. Oh God, he's, he's amazing. Won I a love Nobel him. Prize. Yeah, he's won. a cur curiosity. He, he's the essence amazing. of curiosity. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's it's a weird documentary because I had seen plenty of science documentaries in my time, but this was about a scientist. But it wasn't about science. It was about his desire before he died to get to this place that he had collected stamps from when he was a kid. And this place is in the center of Asia, totally exotic place where people live in teepees and they look kind of like Mongols or American Indians. Was this Tuba? Exactly. He was the other guy? He was the guy who died? Exactly. So, so oh, Richard no Feynman, when he was a kid, he collected these weird triangle-shaped and diamond-shaped stamps from this weird place and it stuck in his head. And you know, near the end of his life, he, he resurrected this idea of, God, I wonder what happened to that place. And somebody made a whole documentary, a guy named Chris Sykes, who I later met, made this documentary about him wanting to go to Tuva and dying before he could go. But they set up this I place I never knew this part it's about like amazing, Richard Feynman. Such oh, an man. exotic, amazing place. And I said, and I, when I was 15, I, I said, oh my God, this guy, Feynman, who I'd never heard of until then, he didn't make it, but I'm going to make it. By golly, I'm going to make it one day. And six years later, I backpacked around the world, and I was up in northwest China, just across the border from Tuva, and I couldn't get there. I was running out of money, it was winter, and, and it was illegal to cross the border there. And I went home, and not two weeks later, Tuvan singers, so this place of Tuva has a very unique culture. Right, it's um, three octaves, they can sing. They can sing three, even four overtones at the same time. So this so, is like Tarzan on steroids. This is, I don't know, I, I had never heard anything like it, but it sounds like something vaguely, like somebody whistling, chanting, and, and, and groaning at the same time. Interestingly, so they were coming to America for the first time ever, um, and I went to their concert, <clears throat> met the person who organized it, which was Richard Feynman's friend, Ralph Layton, and he told me about a blues musician in San Francisco who played with John Lee Hooker and B.B. King and wow. all these amazing musicians, um, and he had taught himself how to do this Tuvan style of what they call throat singing, this multi-harmonic Did singing. he do it on his own, or did he hear about the Tuvinians? He, he heard a broadcast, a shortwave radio broadcast uh, on Radio Moscow 10 years earlier, recorded the broadcast, didn't know where it was from. He just, he could tell this um, guy, Paul Pena. He was blind. He was just, his, he was blind. He had perfect pitch. Right. Amazing musician. He could tell it was coming from a voice. Most people would think it was like a whistle and a violin and a flute or something. He could tell it was one voice. He recorded it, spent 10 years teaching himself how to do it. And, and, and I had, I found out about him just shortly after he and Ralph Layton met and, and Paul was given an opportunity to go to Tuva. And my film is about Paul Pina, the blues musician, traveling to Tuva for a contest of this multi So you went with Paul. Right. And I was just out of college. I was fresh out of college. Uh, it was my first project. 21, 22 years old. Uh, yeah, 23 maybe by the time okay. I actually shot the film. Um, and, and, and while I was making that film, I, I had heard, I started learning about how films get financed, independent documentaries, and I heard about grant writing. So I wrote a bunch of grants, didn't get a single one. I spent years trying to raise money. We ended up, my brother and I did it on credit cards and just working odd jobs to sustain ourselves. And so I thought when I finished that movie, it took me four years to make it. I thought that, uh, that I would show it to my mom and my dad and a couple friends, and then I'd get a job immediately because I was totally broke. But instead what happened is the film got accepted to the Sundance Film Festival and it won the audience award there. It was. It played in Berlin and Rotterdam and it played all around the world. And it showed me that there was an audience for this thing that I was interested in that, that I could not find support for 
But just beyond my horizon, just beyond my sphere of influence, there was an audience for the things I was interested in. And it kind of edified me to think, okay, whatever weird things that I'm curious about, there is an audience out there. Uh, I just have to make the movie and connect with them. Yeah, people have to get beyond their fear because they are curious. We're, we're innately right. hardwired to be curious, but we always have that background like that holds us back and now it's more than ever. We're risk averse right. Right. And, and people are, are yearning for it. I think, you know, like what we do, Derek and I with the ultra running, people, it's, it's, that, that sport is just booming mm. because mm. people are yearning for, for, for it. And it's like, you know, when Gordy Ainsley ran Western States because his horse went lame, mm. he was this mountain man, not politically correct, womanizer, mm. great guy. Mm. Okay, but he, he was the antithesis of like the majority of the ultra running crowd today. Mm. So people want to do these curious, risky things, but they don't want to take a risk. Right. Well, <laughs> and that's sort of what I was getting at with you is like, I would love to encourage people to have the experience I had when I started running long distances in the mountains, which is I didn't like running. Right. Running was tedious. Like I said this morning to your daughter, running sucks. It just felt <laughs> miserable. It's like you'd have to run for practice. I love playing sports and chasing a ball or trying to score a goal. I could run my butt off, but, but just running for the sake of it was miserable. Until a couple of friends of mine got me into running in the mountains. And the key for me was run slow enough that you can talk. And I thought, well, that's easy. Then I'm not exhausted and I don't feel like my lungs are going to oh, be coughed Oh, Roko, Roko, you're going to have to come up with me this, this summer. Well, it was so wonderful. You're not going to be able to talk, though. Because okay. when we get to high altitude, okay. nobody talks. Right. Well, well the, 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 yeah. the, the reason I bring it up is it was a gateway for me. I did not like running until the moment I realized if I go slow enough to where it's not miserable, that's okay. It's, it's not just that, though. Here's huh. the other thing, because I started running in before 2000, because okay. I, I saw... I was, my 40th birthday was approaching. I'm figuring, okay, this is the halfway point. How do okay. I want to spend the other half? Yeah. And I'd always run here and there sporadically, but never, but you know, in the, in the 90s, I was working. I wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, focused on that. Mm -hmm. and, and so I started running to get healthy and, and ran my first marathon. That's why, I, that's why I accidentally came across this whole fat metabolism. So I mm -hmm. did the pasta feed. I, I ran, I was really in shape to run a fast marathon. Mm -hmm. You know, by mile 18, all of a sudden, the warning lights were coming wow. on. By mile 23, it was system shutdown. I finished. I ran a good time, got a Boston qualifier, but I didn't run a sub three-hour marathon, uh -huh. which I easily should have done. Uh -huh. And that's what got me going. But the point I want to make is um, a couple years after that, after I got started with the running, a group of us did a trail run. Mm -hmm. And I'd never done, I'd, you know, I've been just running on the roads around Davis. Mm -hmm. And I went with a trail run with this group, and I'm like, well, this is kind of sort of like how, is it, how I grew up hunting. Yeah. Just spending yeah. your days on the trail. Right, and looking around yeah, and, and see things and, and so dynamic. what you're talking about with the, with the physiology, though, we're getting back into that natural environment that right. we're meant to be in. And right. I think there's some, there is some subconscious messaging, signaling yes. that puts us in a very different space than the urban, suburban. That's right. So it's not in. just going slow. It's also that you get to be out in a place. Right. And, and there's something about it. You know, one time, there's something about earning it. So, so you get the view from the top of the mountain. If you've run up that damn mountain, it's so much more rewarding than if you've driven up the mountain. That's right. It's still a beautiful view if you've driven. But if you're sweaty when you get up there, and that gives you a chance to take a little water break and you look at your view, you're like, wow, there's something that's so whole about the experience and so wonderful. Yeah. And the problem is, there's a disconnect between hearing those words from me or from you and doing it, right? What does it right. take to get somebody to actually do it? 
like I didn't believe my friends and they, they tried for a few months to convince me to run and it was only when I did it that I believed them. Yes. In other words, the words didn't work. I needed to find, bridging that gap was just the fact that I gave them the benefit of the doubt one day. And then, you know, I, by, like I said, I started running slow, but within a few weeks I was running just as fast as they were and doing many, many, many miles, 10, 15, 20 miles in the mountains. And I never knew I could do that. And it was so e so much easier than I thought. It was so much less struggle, so much more rewarding. Yeah, and once you're in that zone of what I call fat burning, you're, you're just present and you're right. doing it. And, and here's the thing, you know, as a biologist, I look at this in a much bigger picture than just humans or human physiology. I mean, I look at, like I was saying to your wife, Gail, I look at a much bigger cycle of life part too. Mm -hmm. And organisms, thrive when they get the right adaptive stressors mm -hmm, and we've right. taken so many stressors you know those physical adaptive stressors out of right. our life and we put in these chronic mental emotional things and it's like i said the technology of yeah. what we're doing has removed those those adaptive stressors that made us smart uh ingenious innovative right. problem solving and it, it's put us in a very you know, a lot, I'm not saying everyone, but you know, like what got you to where you are as a filmmaker, you, you scraped together a film that, yeah. right? Cause you had to, you, you wanted, you were, it was just tough. Like, yeah. Just like your dad rowing across the Atlantic, you wanted to make this film about this blind blues singer going to tuba to compete in this. Right. It wasn't the obvious thing to do fresh out of college. Right. But yeah. you were so, but, but you, you problem solved to get it done, whether it was right. running your credit cards up, Right. Finding an odd job, you, you made it happen, and, and that's that's the thing. It's like organisms thrive when they get those challenges, and then they overcome them, and that that creates that cascade effect of, of satisfaction and that what I call that quiet confidence of happiness. Yes, and this is one of the challenges of being a parent: is I know my kids need some amount of hardship to really thrive. But we don't want them to. Exactly. But as a parent, every reflex is saying protect them from any uncertainty, unsafety, anything that's dangerous, anything where they could get hurt. So there's this huge conflict between what I know is good and, and what, what I'm actually wanting to do and willing to put on my shoulders. You know, and as a, as a parent of kids who come from a split family, like, like the mother wants to protect them more and she she's great about the education and all the mothering things but having them face their fears right having them to challenge themselves physically it's it's kind of it's it's challenging it's a challenging thing you know what i'm recognizing is just sports organized sports uh, my daughter is in swimming right now my son and daughter both do karate uh, my daughter was also doing aerial silks for a while sports is a great proxy Yes. Even though you know there's no lions running around or there's no sharks in the uh, you know swimming around when you're when you're swimming well, in the pool. Well, and, and the competition with teams. It's exactly. Like, the, it's like you you know the warring tribes. There's a huge value right. to it, and and I see uh, all kinds of character building. And I also love sports growing up, and I think that's a that's at least something that we can aim towards that is relatively safe and super rewarding and fulfilling for the kids in, in a lot of the ways that yeah, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and you have to you know there has to be like this okay. A lot of life is struggle and a lot of life is work, but when, yeah. you, when you get to a certain level of competency and accomplishment, yeah. that feels really good. When you take that away, like we've made things so convenient, it just like yeah. disappears. Now, yeah. I want to go back to Tuva. Yeah. And so the people living there, I right. mean, 
50 degrees below zero in winter. When I was there, I, I, I frostbit my nose and my ears. I took my earrings out because they were, you know, obviously extremely cold. But even without that, I frostbit my nose and ears. And, and I had these scabs, like literally peeling off, these burgundy scabs peeling off. And people would look at me and I'd say, you know, this is ridiculous. I got frostbit. And they would look at me and it's embarrassing in Tuva to get frostbit. It's like a sign of weakness. So they're like, no, no. <laughs> they're like, no, you look fine. I'm like, I got this scab peeling off my nose. They're like, no, you're not frostbit. They, they look down on people who have red cheeks from windburn, they like, consider them to be like country bumpkins who are outside, you know, out in the, in the fields all winter. And, uh, and so to them, it's a sign of like weakness. Anyway, the point is they have inherent physical hardship. It's super yes. beautiful and warm in summer, but it's extremely cold and brutal in winter. And so just walking to the car, if they have a car or riding the horse to the next village, if they have a horse, and that's where they travel. Most people don't travel by horse anymore in Tuva, but some do. Um, you know, and I got on a horse ride. Just, just being out there, you have to, you know, get a little burly just to survive that. And so, so these challenges, even um, shepherding, you know, there's still nomadic shepherds in Tuva. And they, their winter pastures are up in the mountains, right. and the, and the, or summer are up in the mountains in the winter down in the valleys. Um, that lifestyle has a lot of inherent stressors to it that are physical, and, yeah. and they appreciate it. And, and this throat singing, by the way, um, this, us, this, yeah, yeah the story is that it evolved from the shepherds uh, being out in the fields and trying to emulate the sounds in nature, the sound of water over a babbling brook, the sound of birds in the trees, so they had the sound this, of wind. Just, just like I say about I do my best thinking, they just had this random opportunity. To, and, to, and feel, to, to, to literally try and emulate the sounds of nature with their voice. At least that, that's one of the legends of the, the birth of Tuvan Throat But they, they, they were like immersing themselves in nature. They were integrating yeah. themselves in, in it with this. And, and so, right. and, and, and they live as a happy people, I imagine, for the most part. Generally, yes. I mean, they also have challenges. Um, but, but and, and I guess this, this sort of gets at the root of what you're saying, which is our society moves in one general direction, which is towards safety and comfort. Right. And that's because when you don't have safety or comfort, those things are very important. They're very precious. Very precious. Yeah. So any Tuvan in the middle of a 50, you know, below snowstorm would be very happy to get into a warm yurt with a fire. Like that comfort is life, it could be life-saving. Yes. The challenge for us is where to draw that line. Like, yeah, why would find, you ever find that balance? Right. My dad was living the American dream, you right. know, had a nice house, had a beautiful family, loving friends. And he just had everything you could want if you wrote down the American dream. I mean, he why? had it twice. He had two boys and then That's he had right. two girls. That's right. Like, why the hell would you get into a rowboat without a motor or a sail and, and, and try and cross the ocean? That level of hardship is illogical to most people. Why would you do that? You know, even when I surf out here, sometimes when the waves are big, but it's stormy or it, it doesn't look beautiful or it's cold, people say, oh, you know, I'll wait till the weather's nicer. It, it's not logical why you would run 50 miles in the mountains. And that's sort of one of the challenges is culturally, we've been taught that, we've been taught to aspire to a comfortable, couch yeah, and a big tv and a remote so you don't have to get up you know and get off yeah. the couch like like you know and a car where you don't hear the road noise and that has you know climate control and even the radio level adjusts with the outside noise all of these things are interesting and wonderful inventions but we it's important i think to to turn those off and get out in the mountains or in the yeah. ocean or, or do whatever yeah. it is funny because you know that old the old term keeping up with the joneses is kind of come into play like what kind yeah. of car you drive right um, well i was just just thinking as you were saying that sorry to interrupt peter but yeah. but if 
if, if you do go out and run 50 miles, but you hang out with people who don't do that, all of your cultural noise will be telling you you're crazy or you know, it won't be encouraging you to do it more. But if you surround yourself by people who are doing similar things, yeah. who are striving to get out in the nature, who are wanting to push their bodies, then, then your version of keeping up with the Joneses can be positive. Because then you say, you know, my friend just ran a 50 miler. I wonder if I could ever do that. Let me try. You know, th there's a positive side to that social wanting to fit in if you're around a social group that's nurturing to your goals. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But, but I'm okay with being... Yeah, the weirdo. The weirdo. Yeah, and, yeah, and, but but yeah. also, like, I find the whole concept of curiosity and happiness mm. being around people who have that. Because, I, you know, I, I know with my, my journey... I know a lot of very brilliant people who just aren't happy and, and there's yeah. an undertone there that is really sad because I gravitate to these people because I'd like, well, you know, you're brilliant. You, mm -hmm. you, why, why are you not happy? Yeah. And, but they, you know, that, that those, the hardwiring of those synapses align themselves and they, you know, until you get that snap of awakening like, man, you don't change that because now it's all the, the brain synapses are fired a pattern to fire that where you always think well okay what's this person want from me or what right and, well th there's also a challenge that in the in the intellectual spheres it's often easy to undercut your happiness with the logic that says how can I be happy when I know people are suffering how can I be happy when Syrians are you know fleeing their country or Ukrainians are fighting for their lives or, or Russian or, soldiers Russian boys and men are getting conscripted or kids in LA are not getting enough food to eat before they, they can go to school you know I mean well all around then, us, then the school food program is garbage well and, and this is <laughs> it. Like so, it so that, on and on. that's it so if you think about those things it's illogical to be happy because it, it, it feels contradictory or can feel contradictory if you want to be a conscientious thoughtful compassionate, empathic human being, when people are suffering, how can I be happy? So that's one argument that whether people go through it uh, consciously or not. But you're adding to that, you're adding to that, well, that universal sphere of, of negativity. Well, exactly. Now, and, and, and people who are happy have better relationships. They are healthier. They're more productive at work. They're better teachers. They're better students. Yeah. They live longer. Happiness is a win-win. Happiness is not about the person yeah. who's happy or not. It's about them and their community. Well, Everybody it goes both, like I say, with hu as humans, it's a synergy. When everybody's happy, that synergy brings it up. But if everybody's miserable and, and that's right, and, 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 and happiness, and people are more creative, they're yeah. more likely to come up with solutions to problems if you're you happy. Did, and this is a this is a good point you put up because one of the things that we've seen, especially been clear in the last three years, is when you instill fear with people, mm. they literally stop thinking. Right. They lock down and they that fight or flight. And, and they're very vulnerable to external messaging. Yes. I mean, I, what's ironic to me is I know people, because I'm in science, I know people who have basic research mm. who are more qualified to look at research mm. than a lot of the physicians out there. Right. Hey. That's I know. Dogs just dog. dogs love me. Wow, that yeah. is a big They one. just gravitate to my animal magnetism. But it's almost it, and this is the thing like and you could probably speak about this but but I know people who are close to me who mm. have basic research educations, PhDs, mm. I mean really smart people yeah. who have the skill set to evaluate some of the science that's gone out here right. and if it had come across and and these people are actually peer reviewers for journals like top tier journals. Uh -huh. And if 
that kind of science had come across there for the peer review, they would have put it in the garbage. Right. But they right. they just they just lock down. They do what their doctor tells them to, and not evaluate. Yeah. Not, I'm not even talking about being like me, who's just, you know kind of a renegade, right? Yeah. I know I'm a renegade, and I got that bias, but just critically evaluating. They don't mm. even they don't even do that. So it's kind of like been very interesting how um, fear. I, I've been watching. It's like fear when you instill fear. It's just well, that's a, that's a, a a great argument for why your happiness is something you should prioritize because again it, it, it spreads to the people around you it makes you a better yeah. a better you'll be a better problem solver you'll be a better parent a better a better well, kid and back to richard Feynman, i mm. love him because he was so curious mm. you know yeah. and, and you throw yeah. the questions in the air and then you right. try to answer them right 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 no and and, and that that gets at um, one of the ancillary benefits of happiness, which is curiosity and just being able to enjoy what there is. So, so yes, there's a problem in Russia, there's a problem in America, there's a problem in, you, in, in Afghanistan, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iraq, exactly. uh, but, Congo, but the Congo. As happy people, we're able to think about else's safety and livelihood. When yep. we're afraid, we, we hunker down, we circle the wagons to us and our kids and our parents, our loved ones. When we're happy and we're open and we're thriving and we're exercising and we're, and we're curious, we're able to solve the world's problems more uh, effectively. That, that's what the research shows and that's what I believe and I've seen just personally. And I, I think in my, my own personal journey, like, like, you know, this was an epiphany when I made this my day job in the mm. early, late, late 2007, 2008, and then when I really made it my day job in 2008, 2009, a lot of the early adopters were people who had run out of options on the conventional. Mm -hmm. So they were willing yeah. to drink the Kool-Aid of Vespa and fat metabolism, and it worked for them. And I started digging into the textbooks, the physiology and metabolism, and it's like it was this epiphany, like, oh my God, it's completely wrong. Mm. These people are destroying themselves by doing it this way. And when you look at, and as you know, I've gotten deeper, and with the whole thing like now, I mean, we're, we're really in a metabolic health crisis because the people who are having struggling are the ones who have multiple comorbidities. Mm -hmm. And yet with all that going on, I feel very fortunate to have that challenge, mm -hmm. to have the thing that I'm problem solving and like whether I'm working on a macro level with trying to get groups and, and, and how far they reach into what I'm doing or working with a single individual, whether they're an elite athlete or somebody's just trying to get metabolically fit and lose weight. This is great and I get to interact with people. Right, well you're having a positive impact and that feels good. Right, I'm trying to have it's a positive win -win. impact. and. Yeah. and, and the great thing is, is, is there's been people who've recognized that, and that's really positive, and it's sort of that upward lifting. I mean, I, I, I'm so grateful that I have a lot of people who, who are like certified experts, PhDs, MDs, who get mm -hmm. what I'm doing, and they say, you know, yeah, Peter, you got to keep doing this. Right, right. right? Well, that's great. And, and so, you, you know, it's problem solving, mm -hmm. and, and it's it's... It's, it's having that challenge, you know? Yeah, and, and you staying in shape and running and doing what you do. I wish I was in shape, help. look! Well, well that's, that's extra skin. Yeah. I mean, you're still... Well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm in good, good base shape, but uh, oh. you know, it's like, like I say, I mean, compared to the, what, what's considered healthy, I'm like super healthy, but I know, I know where I should be, yeah. and I know where I could be even beyond that. Right. I could there's, be like Derek. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Lean and mean. No, there, there's a uh, sign up at my kid's karate uh, place, and it says, the difference between who you are and who you want to be is what you do. 
That's right. And, that and, and, well, and that goes to a great uh, a guy. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, but his name is John Boyd. Okay. And I'm a lot like him, but John Boyd was a fighter pilot, and he was mm. undefeated in dogfighting. They called wow. him 42nd Boyd because he would take off in the defensive position ahead of the person he was dogfighting, and within 40 seconds, he would be behind him on his tail, ready to shoot him down. Wow. But he, he was a guy that just had this mission. He was against the military-industrial complex mm. and developed this thing called the, the energy to speed or flight uh, energy to maneuverability equation with a mathematician that mm. that literally spawned all the new um, new fighter jets from the A-10, the F-15, 16, 18. Wow! You know because back back when he was flying, airplanes were jet airplanes were coming in and they were fast, but they couldn't turn. Yeah, yeah. And he changed that, but he was the guy that that went up against the establishment. One time he. He literally burned a, a hole with a cigar into a general's tie at a party because he was arguing with them. Uh -huh. And then he came up with this thing called this OODA loop, which is used, it's, it's taught in, in military warfare about mm. assessing, you know, having situational awareness, assessing the thing and taking action. Mm. The guy was a genius, but he was very committed to what he did mm. to the point where he wouldn't take pay. And, wow. And, and he, but he, where I'm going this is he said, he had this thing he did because he did the military brass hated him, mm. the Air Force, mm. and he only made colonel, mm. but he had these, his acolytes. Okay. And he, he had this thing called this yeah. um, stand-up speech, and it was like, do you want to be somebody or do you want to do something? So it was mm. his roll call. It's like, mm. you're going to come to this point where you're going to be called on to either get along and move mm. up and you have a good career or you're going to do something. Yeah. And I yeah. think that that's what that karate yeah. is. It's all about. You, you yeah. know, it's what you do. Right. Right, and, and, and that's the, both um, inspiring and for some people disheartening because they say, well, I don't want to do these things. I don't want to go on a diet, but... but well, it's kind of like, okay, biologically... It should be inspiring because there's so much within our control. There's so much. We can't make ourselves taller. But here's the biological thing. Okay, as, as humans, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're social creatures to an right. extent, right? But, but as individuals, mm -hmm. say so, that, that whole aspect of the satisfaction of doing and, and losing your, your self-consciousness, mm. right? About, yeah. do these people approve of me because of this and this right. acolyte? But then the genius is always when you forget about everything and you just focus on that thing and things come together. You get those, right. I'm sure you get those moments when you're filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's like you lose track of everything. Right. Right? That, that self-consciousness disappears. And, and then every, the magic happens. Right. right? A, a positive psychologist or happiness researchers, they call that flow, the state of flow. That's the flow state, yeah. right? Or you're just in the groove. In the, or in the zone, as they yeah. say. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and yet as social creatures, mm. we do want to get along, you know. And, right. But so there, we, do, we have some but uh, we, receptors we, we're aware. But right? because we made it so easy, we tend not to do yeah. <laughs> like we did. Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, and that, that's the challenge for all of us. And I mean, it's always a good reminder to me to recognize that even though I know all this stuff, right, I've studied all this stuff, I still make mistakes, I still slip, and I still remind myself, oh no, you know, I can, I can tweak my behavior a little bit. I can tweak whether I have my midnight snack or not, or whether I get up and exercise or put it off till the afternoon. You know, it's a process, and I guess that's one of the, um, that's one of the good and bad things. You wish you could just get there and be done with it so that you've achieved it's it. It's a continuum. It's exactly. A, it's, it's dynamic and a continuum. Yeah. yeah. So let's, so the Tuvinians live a very simple, nomadic, but reasonably content. I mean, I'm sure with modern 
life, like like you see with the Inuits with alcohol and modern conveniences. Exactly, there's challenges like that. And then, but then, let's move to your, you know, your movie Happy. What inspired you? And then, what are the takeaways about that? Sure, sure. You know? um, so, a friend of mine who actually uh, sold this huge mansion of his, who's a very successful Hollywood director, moved into a mobile home park here. And to him, that was a big downsizing because he had had this midlife crisis. His name is Tom Shadyac. He made movies like The Nutty Professor, Bruce Almighty, Liar Liar, these huge blockbuster comedies. The guy was a and genius. He's an, he is amazing and yeah. he is a wonderful human being. Yeah. And he read an article in the newspaper one day and, it's, and the article essentially said, America is a rich country but not very happy. Compared to other countries that are doing as well economically and have similar social structures, we could be doing better. And Tom called me and he said, look man, I know what this means because I've got plenty of money and I know people who've got much more than me and I know that a lot of us are not happy. Would you want to make a documentary exploring what really makes people happy? And at the time I had finished my first movie and I thought I knew a thing or two about happiness so I arrogantly thought, oh, okay, I'll make a movie about the stuff that I know that I can share. I didn't realize how much it would change my life. But, but yes, then I spent six years making this film on happiness and because of what I learned, one of the, one of the key ingredients for a person to have a happy life is good relationships. It doesn't mean they're the life of the party and they have a million friends, but it basically means they love and loves them at the base level. And that's, that's a matrix of like, because I mean like, you know, like guys have close relationships, but it's guy relationship, right? Yep. You're never going to say, oh, I love you, Roto. Well, and you, <laughs> you know, know I started to I actually, it's so funny because after making this film, I realized how important my friends are. Yeah. And, and, and it was the first time that my instinct was validated by some research. My instinct was my friends are important. Yes. The society said you would never move to another city to hang out with your friends. You might move for a job, you right. might move for a spouse, but a job is really the one that most people m mobilize around the country. That's why they leave their hometowns is for a job usually. Yeah, for money. I Which made this movie and, and realized I needed to move to LA to be closer to my friends and I did it. You know, I, I was living in San Francisco for 10 years. I grew up in Chicago or in the Bay Area for 15 years, I think. Well, yeah, and the Bay Area is a great place. Wonderful place. Yeah. But I, I realized, no, if I don't move to LA, I'm not going to see my friends. They already have families going. They're not going to move up north. So I got to move to another city. Uh, when I learned about community and how, how important a community can be in terms of those relationships, I realized that the suburb I was living in outside of San Francisco, I bought a house. Where, where were you living? A place called Vallejo. It's the only place oh, we could Valley afford. Oh, Valley Doe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, wonderful place, yeah. but, but um, the only place we could afford also, I wanted to be yeah. close to the city. We bought a house, and in, in nine years of living there, uh, I knew one neighbor, slightly. Okay, nine years. I, I mean, a residential area. Neighbors it's all over. It's interesting, but that there, there's there's a lot of that that, that had transpired in Northern California. Yes, and and one reason once I started making this movie, I realized, oh, all of these houses that we're living in were all built with a big garage in the front. There's no front porch like in the old days where you're looking on your community. There's a garage in the front, and all your life is in the backyard. So it's it's separate from the neighborhood. Yeah. So after learning this research, I, I thought, okay, well, I need a community to live in, and I ended up moving to this mobile home park because it was the most closely connected thing that I could find that looked like the research that we had studied and, and, and led us to a co-housing <coughs> co community in Denmark where people really lived together as a, as a okay, yeah. unit. So, so anyway, that's the genesis. As Tom said, look, I know what doesn't make people happy. I want to know what does. Okay, so Tom, did Tom move to this area? 
That's right. So Tom, Tom had this, he literally, it was actually a 17 bedroom mansion, tennis court, swimming pool. And all that goes with it. Right. And he said, and he said, the people who clean my floor are happier than me, than me and most of my friends. The people who cut my bushes in the yard are happier than me and most of my friends. Yeah. So he sold that estate and moved to a double wide mobile home uh -huh. that was appraised by the, uh, by the insurance company being valued at $11,000 for the actual home. I mean, it's just a little tin can. <laughs> Great. You know, from this huge palatial mansion. Yeah. And, and, but he immediately had a community in this mobile home park. You know, he said it sometimes it takes him a half an hour to take out the garbage because there's, you know, Charlotte right. from down the street and there's uh, Clay from around the corner right. and everybody wants to talk and it's a wonderful communal place. Yeah, so Tom, Tom moved here and was in this in this flux in his life and I got to witness that and he's a, 10 years older than me and I got to see that and, and, and learn from it and realize that I could make some changes in my own life that would lead to so more what happens. were the like with all these people you looked at I mean I'm, I'm sure your wife's the culture she's from is very much a very social culture right yes she's from Ireland right and and she always for her friends was a, always a big it's important. the Irish like put they put they put their socializing and their kaling yeah. above everything else that's it and it's wonderful and, yeah. I, and I got to know some of her friends and they're like you know almost like siblings of mine they're they're such wonderful people yeah yeah so you know in the film you went to all these different places and examined mm -hmm. them. what what you know Tell us about these different places and well, the take homes. Sure. Anything that's stuck in your mind? I mean, there's, well, there's one I mean, question everybody has, which is how, uh, what's the relationship with money and happiness, right? That's a question a lot of people had. And, you know, uh, everybody wants more money than I know. And, and a lot of people say, I, I wouldn't mind being a little happier, right? A lot of people are looking for more happiness, but everybody wants more money. Uh, and it turns out that, that there's a the sort of a sliding scale where if you're extremely poor, you're living on the street, or your kids can't eat, you know, you're not sure where you're going to feed them from every night. 5,000 bucks a year extra make, goes a long, 10,000, 20,000, it goes a long way. And that's chunk change in today's world. Well, and, and, and for some people, right, if you're it's living a, on the street, it's, it's, it's huge, it's exactly. Huge, yeah. and if it means you can it's have a, a safe place to stay and some healthy right. food to eat, wonderful. It makes a huge difference. Once you get, at the time, it was 2000, the mid-2000, 2005 or six, they estimated roughly around $50,000 a year. Above that, more money doesn't really affect your happiness. Some people who are very, very successful doing something that they really love and they've achieved great success financially are also happy because they're doing something they're passionate about. So there, there, some studies show that there's a little bit of an uptick even as you get richer and richer, but it's very slight and some, some studies show that it's flatlined. But the point is money makes a big difference if you're poor. Once you're not poor, once you have basic needs met, it doesn't help much. And that's the point at which, by that point, you need to be reprioritizing. Don't be moving to other cities just for your job if it means losing your community, your friends, your relationships, the, the, the place that you love to run or the place you love to surf. All of those things have value. And so once I learned about- You just can't put a dollar sign on it. Exactly, that's why it's hard as a society to, to understand what that value is. Yeah, it's kind of funny because this is something I battle because like in my work, everything's data-driven and metric-driven. And mm -hmm. I tell people, the data corroborates the experience. It doesn't drive it. Right. I hate the term hacking, because mm. biohacking is like, mm. as a biologist, you don't hack right. You're just a biology that yeah. you do a piece of code, but it's, right. it's, it's now a term in the health sphere, yeah. right? Yeah. And everything gets engineered, and they have these absolutes. And it's like, no, 
biology is dynamic, it's living, it's, it's, there's these variables and these variables are moving on. So here's the deal, like biology and happiness are the same thing. You cannot put a, a number on them. I mean, right. when you think about it, math is a human construct. Nature doesn't sure. use math. I mean, right. all this beauty that we live in in the natural world are, you know, it's like, think of, you can't, you can't engineer that. The union between, I say this to people, that union between your mother mm. and your father, that particular sperm mating right. with that particular egg. One in a billion. It's right. like, there's no, there's no yeah. algorithm for that, right? right, right? right that can right. predict that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and yet here we are with this hubris that we can we can drive da data can drive things. And, and it, you know, so many decisions now are just based on on financial things. Well, and, and this this relates to happiness in that it was not considered a studyable subject for a long time. Because you can't put data on it. Right. That's what they thought. Now, right. now, as one guy, Ed Diener, who's sort of the, the godfather of happiness research, said, he said, well, if we could study depression and pathology, you know, mental pathology, how come we can't study happiness? Isn't it just part of the same we can monetize spectrum? depression. <laughs> well, and, and what he realized is we can. And the point is, we're, he realized we can. Yeah. Um, so people started to study it. But there's it no money in it. Well, you know, I don't know about that part, but, but I know there's some value in it. There's and, a, and, exactly. And it, it helped me, for example, realize that playing is important. Curiosity now, is the, important. The story that I was told by my society, by culture, is that when you're a kid, you play. When you're an adult, you work. And I stopped surfing as an adult. I got out of college. I stopped surfing. I was pursuing my career as a filmmaker. And only once I realized how important play was that I started surfing again. And not only did I start surfing again, I moved to a place where I could surf regularly. I prioritized it. And I am definitely happier than I was before. I was already happy. I had no complaints. Right. I felt grateful for what I had. But I realized, wow, even we're all in some place, like you said, it, it, it's, a, it's a process. We all could get worse and we all can get better in, in many ways. And in terms of happiness, we can improve it or we can diminish it. But, and it's also, it's <clears> like a risk factor, right? What are the odds? So if you're, if you're happy, you're metabolically healthy, you're exercising, you have good relationships. The risk of contracting cancer, heart disease, depression, mm. all the kinds of things, that risk factor, that 2%, I call mm. it, goes down. Whereas if you're chronic, you know. Yeah, if you're stressed, we know that stress, chronic stress is not good for all Physiologically, yeah, right. yeah. Right. I mean, right. it, and it pings your glucose metabolism. Yes, right? and, and you, that's good too. You understand the physiological and the biological yeah. aspects of it. I, my understanding of it, is, is more from the psychology side, yep. is from research, but also my own experience. Like, I, if I surf in the morning and there's some decent waves, whether that surf session is a half an hour or three hours, I'm good for the rest of the day. Or, you know, even a half an hour of surfing or doing something where, where I'm physically sweating and exerting myself. Challenging it yourself. It calibrates the rest of the day. Yes. And it's wonderful. And I don't know if that's because glucose not being pinged or if that's, you well, know, you get in that, you get in that zone. Yes, there's that physiology, but there's also the very reality that when you're surfing, I mean, you're catching a wave. You don't mm. want to fall off. Right. Right. You want to ride you're, that wave. And it's like, you're, you're, like zone. you're, you're like up against nature. It's like this, right. this, this, this life or death fight in a mm -hmm. right. That, that keeps you sharp and alive, yeah. right? You and you cannot alive. think of anything else in that moment or else you'll wipe and, out. And I'm not, I'm not an, I've never been a water or ocean person, but mm. years ago, I went to Mexico to Puerto Escondido. Okay, yeah. Okay, Some big waves and this there. was like 
I was like 20 years old, so this was like 40 years ago. Mm. And I was supposed to meet some friends there for Christmas vacation. They got bumped off their flight, and I was just like there alone. Uh, uh. And this guy comes up to me and says, hi, I'm Corky, Corky Carroll. Okay. Hey, take my, my boogie board. Uh, Corky Carroll, I don't know if you know who he is. Uh, it's, um, he's a, he's one of the legendary surf gods. Amazing, okay. Okay, you can look okay. him up. Yeah. And nicest guy in the wow. world. Wow. It's totally surf vibe, you know? He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. he's down there because Puerto Escondido has really good waves. Yeah. So I started body surfing and boogie boarding. I'm like, wow, okay, I can see why people just give right. up everything to go surf. Right. Big right. waves because... Now, there's, there's something about it, you know, uh, yeah. meditation is something that I know there are lots of benefits. They've been studied. Yeah. I have never developed a, a practice or a habit or however you want to think about it. Right, but you're, you're um, also getting in the zone. I was going to say that surfing, you know, one yeah. of the ideas of meditation is to clear your mind of any distractions, at least some of the principles. And, and you know, when you're surfing, you cannot be worrying about anything, credit card bills, your next project, right. anything. You have to focus on that wave and exactly the balance of what's happening. And, and Yeah, you're completely present in the moment. Right, right. Yeah, no, there's a lot of benefits. And the point is when I do that in the morning, the rest of my day is set. And, and that's a, such an easy um, thing to do. It, it's just not that hard. I mean, uh, you know, or you get on an exercise bike. There's uh, sometimes really boring for me, but even that, a half an hour of that, just sweating. The, the, there's a lot that's within our control, and that's that's back that's to right. the happiness researches. I didn't realize. I thought you were kind of born grumpy and miserable, or you were born, you know, looking on the bright side. I just thought it was kind of who you are. I didn't realize how much of it we can control. We do. Ha we do have some control. I mean, there there are things that are out of our control. I mean, we, we can't. Right. Yeah. Like, clinical like we were depression. Talking earlier about all course. the things wrong in the world. Yeah. And why we aren't why we aren't like mad and angry because of it. That, but we do have. Yeah. We do have license, and that's part of what you know. What I try to do is like I'm not trying to sell a commodity product. But I'm trying to empower people because, like I tell you, say, I want to be a guide, not a guru. You're yeah, going to do this yeah. on your own, and as we empower you, you do it. And I think the happiness and it's rewarding for you. It has yeah. an intrinsic value. Yeah, 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 you're, yeah. You're, you're doing I, something meaningful. I don't want to because I, I, you know, it, when I think about biology, like I was just saying about what what was that combination of egg and sperm that made right. you you? It's like you have to yes we want stability and security but we also for any organism to evolve like you know to evolve and to move forward with in the world as time moves you have to have some some new blood in there right right you have to right. have that adaptation yes we want stability you know you want yeah. you know like you as a but filmmaker you don't want stasis you don't want just the same thing forever right. yeah you need some ups and downs right? right 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 but you need that the basics but then you need to be challenging yourself and, and be willing to make mistakes say okay yeah. that didn't work yeah this didn't work what i learned from this and then then you, you hit your mark you, you know speaking of that one of the um one of the lessons of the happiness research that was so salient to me because it's so easy is that if you want a little boost in your happiness right now think of something that you're grateful for think of something or I'm I'm happy that uh, I recovered from my surgery or I'm happy that you know my kids are doing great in school or I, I'm grateful that I um, you know get to eat my favorite meal tomorrow night when I go to my mom's house and just just by shifting your awareness towards something you're grateful for that gives you a tiny bit of a boost but if you act, if you act, if you if you do an act of gratitude, an act of kindness in the form of let's say writing a letter or email to somebody who did something nice to you or nice for you, a teacher or a colleague or a friend, just writing the letter to express your gratitude 
can have a lasting impact for days or even weeks after you do that act. Now, not a, all of us can, again, be as beautiful as a movie star or talented or, you know, as curious and amazing of a brain as Richard Feynman, but we can all express our gratitude to somebody, right? All of us, that's within... Including ourselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so that was one of the exciting things. It's like, wow, sometimes you think happiness, oh, it's, it's out there. I have to exercise or I have to lose weight or I have to do whatever... You're like, no, all I have to do is think about somebody who was kind to me and express that to them. Write them, call them. That's a beautiful thing. In other words, our physiology is wired to boost our emotions by connecting in a positive way, by thinking about something that we're grateful for. Yeah, and, and, and that starts with our own connection with ourselves. Right. Right. I don't mean that in like I'm a great put myself on a pedestal thing, but in a grounded that, hey, I'm a good person. I'm trying to do some things. I've got to, you know, and stay curious and not, you know, because I see a lot of people who need to do some inner work mm. and face mm. those fears for whatever reason, you know, in their journey they had. And it's in most cases, it's not their fault. Right. Mm. Mm. Like like your dad being raised by a teenage father. Yeah. You know, you, you, you know, but you, you have to face those things and probably your dad did that through his journey of being on the seas and, mm. and immigrating and healthy but you know a lot of people have to just acknowledge that hey I got this I got to work on it and not be afraid yeah. to fear you know curious why why is it that I do this thing and, and, and be yeah. able to examine that you know I think that there's yeah. some grounding there that can a level of acceptance of yourself because I think that so much of relationships issues start with the person's inner mm, self, mm, yeah. and then how, the, and then that reflects on how they interact with, with people around them. With the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. And unless you, you know, unless you've had some trauma in your life or some dysfunctional stuff, you, it's, you know, I see people who were brought up in homes that, you know, there was unconditional love, but there was also expectations you're supposed to be responsible. Right. But, and they don't understand like somebody who came from a dysfunctional family. Yeah. And so. And that's good. They're they're fortunate, but the people from the dysfunctional shouldn't be envious of the person who came from a stable family. They should be saying, "Okay, I can use this." Because you look at people like your father, who, you know, had a lot of challenges, but he became a successful cardiologist. Yeah, and then and, he, and his then job he was rode very across rewarding. The and then he yeah. rode across the friggin' Atlantic. Right, right. I mean, he did. I mean, he was three days from landfall, but he was yeah. he was there. Yeah. Yep, and, and, and it gets back at the, the gratitude concept is, you know, my dad, when I was traveling around the world with a backpack, I came home and I said, hey, have you ever thought of being a doctor in some developing countries? Like, there are people who could really use a doctor in their village, and I think it would be an amazing experience for you. And he said, he said well, Was why? this before or after you made Beyond the Call? Uh, this is before. Okay. And I said, uh... I, I, he said, well, why would I do that? And I said, well, because you can help people. He said, what do you think I'm doing every day at the hospital? <laughs> and I thought, oh, you know, good point. And, and, you know, one thing that, that my dad's colleagues have told me uh, is that he was sort of known for treating people off the books, people who didn't have insurance or who couldn't pay. He was, I think he really saw his job as a kind of an offering. He would never say it that way. It's kind of new agey sounding, but... You know, that, that's what he had to contribute to society that, that gives us all so much, is, is helping people. So, uh, and he saw his work, and, and you know, some of us are lucky enough to have a job that fulfills us in that. Happiness research shows you don't need a job like that. You could be doing something much more, that feels much more menial or less 
directly helping other people. But just doing it well and then using that as a vehicle to enhance other aspects of exactly, life. Exactly, exactly, um, exactly. There, there's a great story that I uh, heard in the research, which is um, somebody was in an intensive care unit for a week or so, yeah. maybe a couple weeks, and, and they were in and out of consciousness, mostly out. And, and all they could, they couldn't move, and all they could see when they opened their eyes is one painting on the wall, I think a watercolor of a, of a landscape or something. They could just see that painting, and, and it, it was colorful, and they enjoyed looking at it, but that's all they could see. And the person, the, the, this patient, realized one day that the painting was different. There was a different painting. Somebody had moved it or something, and the person wasn't sure if they were going crazy or what. And when they finally got better, they discovered that there was a night janitor who, who mopped the floors, saw this patient in the bed, and realized that this patient can only look in that direction. So every few days, this janitor would switch the painting from paintings in other rooms so that they could get a different Stimulation. View. Right. Yeah. That is a kind of awareness and empathy and compassion that all of us could take into our lives. Here was a janitor whose job was to mop the floor but that's not where the job ended. And the janitor was um, approached later and said, oh, you know, why did you do this? Why did you change the painting? He said, well, my job is the same as the doctor's. It's to heal people who come in here because people need healing. And, and that's something I could do. Mopping the floor is one way I could keep, you know, people from getting infections and, and, and spreading. But I can also help by changing their view. And, yeah, and unfortunately, so much of allopathic Western medicine is, is, mm. is focused on procedures in standard mm. of care and it tends to downplay these kind of subtleties like mm. happiness, environmental stimulation. I'm going to give a shout out to your dad for doing what he did and then okay. Beyond the Call was a movie yeah. about doctors doing the same thing and, and shout out to Linda Frazier, one of our medical advisors because she does the same thing. Maybe she's not going into war zones but she's going into Bolivia and El mm -hmm. Salvador and well, the, the, it all relates to, yeah. to, to what we have to offer. Not all of us are doctors. I'm not trained as a doctor. I'm a filmmaker. So that's, that's something I, I can make movies that I believe in that I feel are going to contribute to the world. If you're a, a janitor in a hospital, you can contribute by changing the paintings on the wall or making sure the floor is clean. You know, we, we all have something to contribute. And feeling connected to something bigger is one of the things that makes us happier. When we feel alone and isolated, or we feel it's all about us. Yeah, it's very easy to feel that things are not in alignment, that things aren't working right. And the right. dissatisfaction, we're disconnected. Right, right. And Interesting. It's, yeah. Well, yeah. Rocco, thanks so much for this conversation. I mean, it's, sure. it's wonderful. Any, Thank you. Any small take-homes? Um, I think that, back to the idea of gratitude, think of what, what is going right. A lot of us have complaints. Think of what's going right in your life right now. What, what do you have to be thankful for? Consider reaching out to somebody to, to tell them that you appreciate them. And, and there's a one, one other little trick, which is uh, do something new. Yeah, Just try keep, something the, keep new. the curiosity, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But you know, there's a saying we have, like, like with ultra running, it's like, but did you die? <laughs> right. And there's a little, you know, because like everybody's complaining about how hard it was or whatever. It's right. like, but did you die? Right. Yeah. That's good. That, that's that's at yeah. one end of the spectrum. Some people don't need to be at that end of the spectrum. No, but, no, but we don't, no, we don't suggest that people go to the extremes like like with the ultra running or anything. It's just starting where you are, but but recognizing that fear factor, stepping back from it, and it's like, why am I getting the curiosity? Like, why am right. I being fearful? Why is this person? Right causing me to react or why do I feel this or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and Peter, by the way, the last thing I really was thinking about is 
it feels sometimes that the world is imploding, that the economy is going bad, there's war, there's, you know, there's injustice. But there are so many people out there innovating, working hard, being kind, you know, developing organizations to help people. There's so many people doing amazing work. The reason why we don't feel that is because it's so common, it's not in the news. I mean, when, when well, yeah, like, yeah, the news <clears throat> and the medicines, like, like with me, with my work, like I was saying, you know, what we consider healthy is not mm. healthy, mm. right? Mm. They, stay, they study people who are sick. They don't study people right. who are real healthy. Like, I would like them to study Derek or Jeff Browning or Peter right. Mortimer because... Right. And people are starting to, and that's sort of the yeah. point is that, like, you yeah. know, nobody wants the world to get worse. I, I've traveled all over the world. I, I've never met anybody who wanted to make my life miserable or who wanted the world to, to you know... Right. Combust. Everybody wants people to thrive and flourish. Every, you know, we have different ideas of how to get there, but by and large, the world is working. Individuals are working on a, on a minute by minute basis to make their families' lives better, to make their own lives better, their communities. That's what we're doing. It's not in the news because how, how interesting would it be to read an article about the millions and millions of mothers who fed their kids that morning and brought them to school so they could get educated. There you That's go. not a story. But it's happening well, everywhere. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's like with what I do, some of the stuff I do is, is like I say, most of what I do is just get people back to their natural state. Mm. And it's pretty simple. There's just not, you can't really monetize it in a way you could take it to an IPO and cash right. out. And so there's, it doesn't make the news, but, but these are things people can do. Right. And are themselves. doing because yeah. of you and because of people because that other you work people, with. Because other people, yeah. Right. Other people, there's plenty of other people out there doing it. Jeff Browning's got a huge following. You know, I pioneered this adaptation, but you know, the keto sphere, the paleo sphere, you know, they've been more generalized and it's, it's not just about a diet. It's about a right. whole holistic thing. That's why we're here talking about happiness because yeah, it's, it's like all I part say, of the same story. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, these are all components and this is a tool like, a diet is a big tool, exercise is a big tool, but chronic stress, that's as big a problem as too many carbohydrates and right. too much sugar in the that's diet. That's a tool turning the wrench right. the wrong way. Yeah. Right, yeah. Having, having a sense of gratitude, curiosity, and happiness, it sets up a physiology that's, that's gonna get you back to that native thing because you, know, you look at these people like the Tuvinians or some of these other people you had in, in Happy, um, they lead relatively simple lives, but they're happy, content. Yes, they have challenges. Yes, they have struggles. Just right. it's the human condition. But by and large, they don't have this chronic stress and discontent. Yeah. Because they don't; those pressures just aren't there. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So awesome. we're gonna we're gonna end this up. I think the adjunct to this conversation will be your homework <laughs> is to rent or get this DVD. Happy, Rocco Bellic. The mastermind. Um, we're looking Thank forward you to seeing. You got some several projects besides. I do. Yeah. So we're going to see some more coming out. Um, we'll uh, list some of his work and some links to it on on our YouTube channel. Perfect. So awesome. Cool. Thank you, Peter. That was super fun. It was not yeah. only fun. I think it was a great conversation. That I think, was awesome. Uh, the fact that we recorded it this time rather than just talk on the phone. That's it. It's can help that message get to a bunch of other people.